You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, I was planning to talk about the James Webb Space Telescope at the top of this week's show. It's the largest telescope ever hurled into space, a $10 billion price tag, 30 years in the planning. The Webb Telescope can peer into the deepest recesses of space and time, much farther out and much farther back than the Hubble Telescope. And the very first images from the Webb Telescope will be released today, Tuesday, July 11th, by the president. I'm excited. I think we're about to find out that the universe wasn't created in seven days and is more than 6,000 years old. And who knows? Maybe we'll catch a glimpse of an alternate universe somewhere where the president went ahead and canceled student loan debt. Anyway, I don't want to come off like some sort of clout chaser, but I actually have a very weird, very tenuous, and very aggravating connection to the James Webb Space Telescope, thanks to the New York Times. The paper of record, all the news that's fit to print, first draft of history and all that. And maybe I'll talk about that on another show, because today I want to talk about some breaking news, porn news, news that's a bit more in the wheelhouse of a sex advice podcast, or a bit more in the whorehouse or bathhouse or molly house of a sex advice podcast. And it's good news for a change. I feel like it's been forever since I've been able to open the show with some good news. So... That's why I'm not going to rehearse my beef with the New York Times and New York Times science reporter Dennis Overby today on this week's show about how they described me or Overby accused me of leading some sort of campaign that doesn't exist to get James Webb's name off that telescope. James Webb was an administrator at NASA in the 1960s when they put a man on the moon But before working at NASA, James Webb was an undersecretary of state in the Truman administration during the Lavender Scare. He oversaw the firing of gay men and lesbians from the State Department. And there were some rumblings in 2015 about getting his name off the telescope. And I wrote a piece at the time arguing against trying to get James Webb's name off that telescope. I literally wrote in 2015, we have bigger problems Can we not do this, please? 2015, we arguably had much bigger problems by late 2021, which is when I saw a headline in the New York Times about a push. I assumed a renewed push to rename the James Webb Space Telescope to take Webb's name off it. And I rolled my eyes and started to read the piece wondering who was still out there pushing this rename the telescope bullshit. So you can imagine my surprise when I got to paragraph four and discovered that it was me. The New York Times said I was behind the effort to rename the telescope based on my 2015 blog post in which I argued that we should not rename the telescope. I pointed out the error on Twitter at the time, October 2021, and asked for a correction and never got one. So that piece in the New York Times fingering me as the force behind some non-existent push to rename the James Webb Space Telescope is still up at the New York Times. They're still fingering me. And the fingering is interfering with my ability to celebrate this momentous day. But like I said, I'm not going to talk about that. 
But if you want to learn more about the history of the Lavender Scare, read James Kirchick's amazing new book, Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. All right, on to the good news I promised you at the beginning of this rant. Good news out of Oregon, where a jury awarded former nursing student Nicole Gilliland $1.73 million after finding that administrators at the nursing school she attended, Southwestern Oregon Community College, discriminated against Gilliland after learning she had briefly been a porn performer a decade before she enrolled in nursing school. Gustavo Turner, who's been all over the Gilliland story from the start, reports in xbiz.com, after a protracted process extended by the school's reluctance to acknowledge wrongdoing, Gilliland and her lawyers convinced the jury in a day, they only deliberated for a day, about the merits of her claim that in 2017, one of the staffers told her she could not be a nurse because she was, quote, an unclassy woman. And then, again quoting, records were altered to make her flunk out of the nursing program where she had been excelling. Gilliland is now a law student in Massachusetts and a sex workers' rights advocate. And thanks to those dumbass, sexphobic, whorephobic, pornphobic, unclassy, and very assy motherfuckers at Southwestern Oregon Community College, it looks like Gilliland is going to graduate from law school in this universe without any student loan debt. This is a victory. And a victory in disguise for people who don't want other people who make porn to keep making porn. Look, anti-porn crusaders, if you make it impossible for someone who has made porn to do something else, to do anything else, what other choice do they have than to keep making porn? And a lot of us have been making a lot of porn over the last few years. There are a lot of newly minted porn stars out there. The number of people with accounts on OnlyFans, which is just one of the self-produced porn sites on the internet, the number of creators, as OnlyFans calls them, exploded, going from 120,000 creators at the beginning of the pandemic in 2020 to more than a million creators by the end of 2021. And those are just the people out there trying to make money making porn. Lots of people are out there sexting and sending nudes and sharing best practices their solicited dick pics. Look, anti-porn crusaders, the barrier to entry to the porn business has never been so low. Literally everyone is carrying a porn studio around in their pocket. Anyone with a smartphone and access to Wi-Fi at a Starbucks can be a porn producer, director, and star these days. So with that being the case, with the barrier to entry being set so low, you don't want to set the barrier to exit too high. You shouldn't want the barrier to exiting porn to exist at all. You don't want to turn making porn into some sort of Porny Hotel California, you can get on OnlyFans anytime you like, but you can never leave. Sorry about that, everybody. Look, if you want people to stop making porn, don't stop them from becoming nurses or doctors or paramedics or lawyers or teachers or airline pilots or weed store owners or podcasters instead. Uh, just kidding about that podcaster's part. There's no degree required to podcast. No podcasting licensing authority exists. There's no podcast bar association. Being a podcaster is like being a modern dancer. Get your hands on a mic or a leotard or both, and you can sit with us. 
All right, coming up on today's show on the micro, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. And joining us on the Magnum, Andrew Gerza, disability rights activist and thought leader, returns with some sex and masturbation tips for the disabled and some sex toy recommendations. The Magnum Lovecast, as you've heard me say a million times, twice as long, more calls, more guests, no ads. And Magnum Savage Lovecast subscribers also get access to Sex and Politics, a new bonus podcast we're doing just for Magnum subs. And this week we've got a new one coming out with author, writer, and substacker Phoebe Maltz-Bovey. Phoebe and I talk about Drag Queen Story Hour, straight ladies, whether they're boring or not, and gender-conforming kids, whether they exist or not. That's on S&P coming out Thursday. But right now, right now, right in your ears right now, this week's Savage Lovecast. Hi, Dan. Uh, late 30s. Bye guy here. I am in a committed relationship with my wife. We have an open relationship and I just recently started dating again and met someone who I really click with. Um, what I'm basically looking for is like a friends with benefit situation. I'm a submissive guy. This woman is a top. We have really awesome chemistry. We've chatted a bunch, you know, prior to the date. Between uh, the first date and the second date, we had great two dates so far. And my issue is that this person sweats a lot. Um, and I know that we are all human beings who sweat uh, and do other bodily functions, but I find sweat in particular to be really disgusting. <laughs> Even though I sweat, when I sweat, I find it to be like unpleasant and need to change my shirt. I have my wife carry around an extra shirt uh, in her purse for me. I don't know. I just, I, I find it to be like uh, yucky. I know that's judgy and weird. And I think it's probably related to like, you know, some past trauma potentially, but we're all humans who sweat. Uh, my primary partner sweats. I still want to hang out with this new person. I think I want to be intimate with this person. I think the more that we like get to know another human being, the more I get to know a human being, the less something like this bothers me. But this is a thing that keeps coming up with new people. Like I live in a pretty hot city, but if they show up to like the first date and they're like sweating a lot, which we do and we're nervous, sometimes I do it, but not as much as, I don't know, this person. It's just like, it's a huge turnoff for me. And I just, I would like to know how to overcome this. So if you've gotten to know someone, if it's not the first or second date, if you've developed a real emotional connection with someone, you can get past or get over the fact that your new sex partner, like all other mammals, including the person that you're seeing, when they get overheated, glands on their skin release moisture, which as it evaporates, causes the body to cool you know, I don't want to ruin sex with all other humans and all other mammals for you, but we all sweat all the time, up to a quart a day, whether or not we're sweating so much in one moment that you can see it, that someone's actively, obviously perspiring and is damp and, you know, pitting out. Everyone's sweating all the time. But, but again, if you have a really strong emotional connection with someone, if you've established attraction and you've gotten to know them a bit, you get past those, which means I guess you're kind of like a demisexual, but for sweat. Ugh. What can you do about it? Well, uh, how much do you want to invest in overcoming this? Maybe you could spend some money on a cognitive behavioral therapist and 
really attempt to work past this aversion or this phobia, or you could work around it. You could have sex and walk in coolers. You could move to a less heat hot city. It's almost July here in Seattle where I am, and it is currently 60 degrees overcast and freezing here right now. I had to turn the heat on in the podcast booth because I was shivering. Come to Seattle. No one is noticeably, although all mammals are always sweating and perspiring, no one here right now is noticeably perspiring. But if you're going to be in the city where you live and it's a hot city, if you're in Phoenix or Los Angeles or San Diego or Dallas, you're just going to have to get past it, maybe with the help of a cognitive behavioral therapist, or you're just going to have to tough it out. You're going to have to go on a couple of dates. You're going to have to get to know someone. You're going to have to sweat demisexual your way out of this problem with each individual person that you get with and that you sweat with because you will be sweating with them. Whether you know it or not, whether you can see it or not, all of your sex partners are sweating all the time, you included. Hey, Dan. Sis, het. 25-year-old female here. I am calling for some advice about my relationship with my boyfriend. Uh, We've been together for a year and a half and there's nothing, I guess, like wrong. He's my best friend. Uh, We have a lot in common. He's really sweet. I just can't shake this feeling that I've had since the beginning that it's not the right relationship for me. And there's just something in me that feels like it's not going to work out. And I don't know if I need to like listen to my gut, listen to what I've been thinking from the start, or I go back and forth of thinking that maybe I'm a perfectionist and maybe I have unrealistic ideas about what love is and about whatever. But I guess it's also worth mentioning that, like, for some reason I had a really hard time, like, telling him that I loved him. And I I think I do. I just, I just don't want to drag this out longer than I should because I do really care about him and I don't want to hurt him. And I feel like, like, he's definitely a little more invested than me. And so I don't want to, like, drag this on longer than I should but also like it is a great relationship so I'm just kind of stuck here maybe you're the problem maybe you have commitment issues maybe you have unrealistic expectations maybe you had the kind of upbringing that makes it hard for you to identify what love is or what a loving relationship might feel like but even if all of that were true even if the problem was you or the problems were yours. Those are problems. Those are things you're going to have to work through probably on your own. I doubt though that the problem is you. You have been ambivalent about this relationship. You say from the start, you were reluctant to say, I love you, probably, you know, based on how you describe him as being more invested in the relationship from the start than you've been, probably you were hesitant to say, I love you in response to his having said, I love you. And someone can be your best friend and you can have a lot in common and you can have a great rapport and a great relationship, but they're not the right romantic partner for you 
forever. Look, it's only been, just to zoom out for a second, it's only been a year and a half. You say that you're 25. If he's close to the same age, uh, he'll get over you. If you break up with him, he'll be sad. His heart will be broken. People talk about broken hearts in advance of having their hearts broken or having to break somebody else's heart as if broken hearts are fatal. And look around. We're surrounded by people who got dumped. We're surrounded by people who got dumped out of the blue, unexpectedly, who had relationships, and people walk out on them, and they're shattered. And yet, they reassemble somehow emotionally, romantically. They wind up in new relationships with people who actually don't feel ambivalent or don't feel overwhelmingly or overwhelmed by ambivalence as you do. You know, there's always going to be ambivalence in any relationship. There's always going to be the what if, what if somebody else, grass is greener, the life you could have led, different choices you could have made. That is something that everyone in an LTR experiences. But if the ambivalence is overwhelming, and it's overwhelming, what, 18 months into this relationship? Sounds like it's been overwhelming since the beginning of this relationship. Eh, you should probably get out. You're in a long-term relationship, and every once in a while you're like, oh, I could do better. Every once in a while you're like, oh, there are certain needs that I don't get met in this relationship that I'm always going to be a little annoyed about not getting those needs met and having to kind of eat that I don't get those needs met. That you can live with. But staying with someone for the rest of your life, for the next, you're 25 years old, the next 50 years, 60 years, because you don't want to hurt them because you like them, but don't love them? Is that really something you can do for five more decades? And you're 25 fucking years old. If you end this relationship and you get into therapy and you give yourself some space and some time and you realize that the problem was yours and he was right for you and you want to get back together with him, well, if he's still single two years from now, where you're both still very young, you can circle back. You can possibly get back together, but you probably won't want to. Because just based on everything you've said, there is no the one. I'm not going to say I don't think he's the one for you. I don't think he's right for you. Somebody else, many other possible someone else's out there could be right for you. But based on everything that you're saying now, and just not to read too much into the crying and the tone of your voice, based on how you sound, he ain't it. And don't do that narcissistic pivot that some people do to paralyze themselves, where you tell yourself that you can't dump this guy because he'll never get over the heartbreak. Lady, he'll get over you. And you'll get over this. You'll get over it. You'll get over the end of this relationship. And one day you'll be in a better place and a new relationship, possibly even a new relationship with this same guy. Yeah, how you doing? Um, it's going to be a pretty scattered question, but uh, yeah, I consider myself uh, primarily hetero and I'm interested in what they call wifing, not really cuckolding, but the question more is whether it's considered bisexual. Semi-common question, but I think uh, I'd be a lot more candid 
and hopefully insightful about why I think I'm interested in it, which is a little bit confusing to me. And also that maybe I think that because of my background is uh, would be more insightful for people that may be interested that I considered straight, including myself. And also I just would love to delve deeper into the possible psychology as to why hot wiping and or cuckolding, as they call it, would be an interest to myself and many others. People tend to lump cuckolds together with uh, stags. People tend to lump cuckolding together with hot wifing. And both scenarios do involve, and we're just going to talk about straight scenarios here, both scenarios do involve a man sleeping with some other man's wife or girlfriend. In a cuckolding scenario, the wife has the power, the girlfriend has the power. She is sleeping with other men you know, theoretically, whether her husband likes it or not, usually the husband likes it very much in a cuckolding kink scenario. But she has the power, and she is rubbing his nose, her husband or boyfriend's nose, in his inadequacy. He is being humiliated and degraded when his wife or girlfriend sleeps with some other man. In a hot wifing scenario, the man who's allowing someone else to sleep with his wife or girlfriend rather than his status being degraded, his status is being exalted. He is the kind of guy who attracted this really hot woman. He's got a really hot wife, really hot girlfriend. And he has the power in the relationship to such an extent that he can share his wife or girlfriend with another man. He can give his wife or girlfriend to another man. Now, we're talking about an erotic role play scenario Hot wifing, if it's not coercive, doesn't involve one man forcing his wife or girlfriend to sleep with other men, whether she likes it or not. It is consensual, and she is sleeping with other men that he wants her to sleep with. Just like the cuck who's into degradation is enjoying the degradation. He's a sub. His need is being met. Uh, a wife in a hot wife situation is getting her needs met too. It's It's symbolic power and control. Right, Everything in the world is about sex, except sex. Sex is about power, but it's about eroticized power. And when properly sort of folded into a relationship, the power play in any kind of sexual encounter and kink encounter is consensual. Now, is there something necessarily gay or bi or homoerotic about hot wifing or cuckolding? Well, it kind of depends on the cuckold, kind of depends on the stag. There are some cuckolds out there who are heteroflexible or bisexual, but they enjoy their male-male play in the context of a scenario or a scene where it's being forced on them, where they are submitting to the wife's male partner, you know, eating his cream pie or maybe sucking his dick or cleaning his dick off or lubing his dick up so he can stick it in the wife. And there is, you know, male-male contact there, but it's filtered through, you know, a heterosexual conceit. Are some of those guys by Absofuckin-lutely. Are they gay? No. There are cuckolds, though, who have no contact with their wives or girlfriends' bulls. They may not even be in the room. They may not even want to watch. With hotwifing, it's uncommon, I think, in a hotwife scenario for the husband or boyfriend to submit to the guy who is sleeping with his wife. Because in a hot wife scenario, the cuckold or the, the, you know, the guy who's sharing his wife or girlfriend isn't being degraded. Nothing's being taken from him. Again, indeed, on the, you know, it's very different. It's not the 
boyfriend or husband submitting, it's the boyfriend or husband controlling and sharing, and it emphasizes his status and dominance. It does involve, you know, the in a hot wife scenario, the stag wants to be there, you know, then it's kind of a threesome. Some threesomes, the dudes in an MMF threesome will have some incidental homoerotic content that's sort of, I guess, straight washed by the presence of the woman. Does that make either guy gay? No, no, it doesn't. Not necessarily. It depends on not just what's going on, you know, uh, with their skin or, you know, bumping shoulders or bumping dicks. It depends on what's going on between their ears. Now, I do think there are straight guys out there who are turned on by watching other guys fuck. What is most straight porn? Most straight porn isn't women all by themselves. Most straight porn or most porn created for straight men isn't, you know, lesbian porn, although a lot of it is. Most of it, the overwhelming majority of porn produced for the heterosexual male consumer involves some other guy's dick. Is there something gay about watching heterosexual porn featuring opposite sex actors, performers getting it on? I don't think so. Now, there may be some people out there consuming opposite sex porn, some guys who identify as straight, who are looking at that dick and thinking, I want a taste of that. And maybe they're just a little bit bi or situationally bi or into some forced bi scenario. But most guys who watch straight porn with opposite sex porn performers are not into the dick, but they're turned on by the sight of it. They're turned on by watching the fucking. I think that's what's going on for most guys into hot wifing. You're watching basically live bespoke porn performed for you by your female partner and a man, theoretically, erotically role play-ish, a man of your choosing. You are in control. The, the stag in that scenario is in control. Is he into the dick? Well, maybe some stags are, but if you're not into the dick, just being into the hot wifing or just being into the cuckolding doesn't make you bi and it doesn't make you gay. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the youth. I'm a bisexual cis woman in my late 40s living in the East Coast. I've always considered myself sex-positive mom of two teens. I've always been really open with my kids about sex. We talk about pleasure and feminism as well as consent. And I've even listened to your show with my daughter, who's almost 15. But now I have a dilemma about setting boundaries without shaming. A few days ago, I was in my daughter's room cleaning it while she was out of town, and I came across a stash of sex toys that had long been missing from a box my uh, husband and I keep under our bed. Let me say they hadn't been used for a long time. Uh, specifically, I found a Nice dildo, my leather harness, a butt plug, some handcuffs, and a small pink vibrator. Dan, there is nothing to kill your sex-positive vibe like discovering your teenage daughter has been using your leather harness and strap-on. Let me say that she came out as gay this year, and we've been really open and supportive 
Um, we've let her girlfriend stay over for a few days at a time. We've been just really positive about the her relationships and her identity. Um, let me say I was in the closet as a queer person in high school. I didn't get to have girlfriends then. There was a part of me now that's super psyched about her identity and even maybe living vicariously through her experiences. I'm married to a straight cis man. And God, you know, I would love to fuck a woman with a strap on before I die. So there are all these layers here. You know, Dan, she can't just take our sex toys. What do I do? I already took them back. I washed and sanitized them. But now I need to talk with her about boundaries and respecting her parents' privacy. But do I offer to buy her own toys or maybe give her a gift card for her birthday for some online feminist sex toy shop so she can just order them for herself and I don't need to know what she likes or what she's using? I I don't really want to know. But she's not 18. Like, how? what are options here? And how can we move through this without shame and recrimination? Because honestly... I'm kind of pissed and I'm kind of jealous and it just feels like a big mess. Pissed, I can understand. Jealous? Living vicariously through your queer daughter and the assumptions you're making based on the sex toys that you found in her room, your sex toys that you found in her room. I think you're going to want to stuff that down. You don't want to be living vicariously through your lesbian teenage daughter that just feels like an unhealthy psychosexual emotional dynamic there. You can acknowledge that your daughter's having experiences that you as a closeted queer young person didn't have. And I think you can feel your feelings about that, but I, you know, I'm uncomfortable with the way you talk about living vicariously with your daughter. Anyway, what I really want to say is you have every right to be pissed. And I predict that your daughter is going to be equally pissed about the invasion of her privacy. Kids are weird. You know, when sex toys go missing in a house with teenagers, leprechauns didn't break into your house and steal your sex toys. They weren't, um, you know, zapped up in a UFO by curious space aliens. Your kids took them. Teenagers. We were all teenagers once. Teenagers, they go through the house with a fine tooth comb, Whatever you as adults are attempting to hide from them, they are going to find. I don't think a teenager who has stolen mom and dad's dusty old strap-on that they haven't used in a while is in any position to be pissed about the invasion of her privacy when you, mom, you say you went into her room to clean it. And I'm sure you did, and I'm sure it was a mess, but that's not how, assuming you're being honest with me about going in there only to clean Uh, It's not how your daughter is going to perceive that. She's going to see that cleaning as opportunistic, as an attempt not really to clean her room, not to vacuum under the bed, but to search through her stuff. And when you searched through her stuff, you found your stuff. Yeah, you have every right to be pissed. Tell her you're pissed. Tell her not to touch your stuff. Tell her that she has to respect your privacy, and then brace yourself for her screaming and yelling at you about your failure to respect hers. Because if you'd only respected her privacy, then you wouldn't have discovered that she hadn't respected yours. Teen 
logic, you will be subjected to it. As for what to do, well, whether you want to give your teenage daughter sex toys of her own, this has come up again and again and again with parents who consider themselves sex positive. And I'm generally kind of pro 15, 16, 17 years old, too young to get into a sex toy shop, but old enough to be sexually active. You're letting your girlfriend sleep over with her. That's very kind of Euro parenting. That's very Dutch or Danish of you. And hey, American parents who freak out about Dutch or Danish parents letting their high school age kids, romantic and sexual partners spend the night in the house. Yeah, those Dutch and Danish parents Uh, Their kids, lower rates of sexually transmitted infections, lower rates of unplanned pregnancies, lower rates of intimate partner violence because, yeah, I think those Dutch and Danish parents are doing something right. So I'm coming to your defense preemptively in case anybody out there is freaking out about you letting your gay daughter's girlfriend spend the night. I guess the question is, do you have to supply your daughter with a strap-on dildo Because there's this implicit threat that if you don't give her one of her own, she's going to swipe yours again or obtain a strap-on dildo on the strap-on dildo black market at her high school. Yeah, you can do that. You know, you can order those things on fucking Amazon. You can go to your daughter and give her a gift card for a sex-positive, woman-owned, feminist sex toy shop. You can also just give her an Amazon card and tell her, you know what? I won't search your room again. You don't search my room ever again. I also won't search boxes coming to the house addressed to you from Amazon or this particular sex positive sex toy store where your daughter is likelier to get, if indeed she wants to get higher quality, safer sex toys than she would on Amazon. Hey, Dan, mid-20s non-binary person calling from Canada. So I'm in a weird predicament where my heart is pulling me in two different directions. One side of me feels like many years ago, I realized that non-monogamy was for me. But then just pre-pandemic, I reconnected with an old flame and we decided to be monogamous now. Don't get me wrong, I really love many aspects of our monogamous relationship, and I genuinely see a future with this person. But as you can imagine where I'm going, he has zero interest in non-monogamy. It's hard because this is like, since I've started dating, basically the first totally monogamous, I haven't cheated relationship I've been in. So I think what I'm asking essentially is, how do I know what the right path to take is I can't tell if I'm just craving freedom and the kind of compartmentalized life that I had before being in this I don't know Uh, as you can tell by how much I'm clamming up I'm really nervous and I, I feel as if I can't string him along any longer you say this is the first totally monogamous relationship that you've ever been in in which you haven't cheated which leads me to believe you've made monogamous commitments in the past that you couldn't keep and didn't keep and that you cheated on people. I'm not judging you, shaming you. I did the same thing before I realized that 
monogamy wasn't something I was failing at. Monogamy was failing me and I needed to stop making monogamous commitments I couldn't keep. I'm assuming you had a similar journey to mine. You were making monogamous commitments because they were what was expected of you or that was what the partners you were with expected or what you expected from yourself. And you just kept shit in the bed, screwing the pooch, plopping your ass down on the third rail, blowing it all up, cheating. And yeah, you needed to stop making those monogamous commitments. And you did until this guy came along that you met at the beginning of the pandemic and he required monogamy and you've been doing it so far successfully. And now you think you might have a future with this person. And I think you could have a future with this person. But if the commitment going forward forever is a monogamous one, I think the future you're likely to have with this person is going to involve a lot of conflict and drama and an almost inevitable, if he insists on monogamy, requires monogamy, an almost inevitable breakup. I think you might want to cut to the breakup chase now, not to just walk in and break up with him, but to go to him and say, I've been honoring the monogamous commitment I've made. Hopefully, at the beginning of the relationship, you two had a conversation where you told him monogamy wasn't right for you over the long term and a monogamous relationship wasn't what you were seeking. So this isn't going to completely come out of nowhere. But if it does completely come out of nowhere, it's still got to come at him. You got to go to him and say, look, this has been great. But if we're going to stay together, I'm not interested in being in a forever monogamous relationship. At some point, we're going to have to open up this relationship. And if we can't come to terms about that, if we can't come to an agreement, if this isn't a conflict that we can reconcile, if this is indeed an irreconcilable conflict, then we're probably not right for each other forever. And you should be able to say, maybe we were right for each other for a time. Maybe you just had a successful short-term monogamous relationship, a successful STR. And maybe for you in the future, you might be able to have another successful monogamous relationship. But what you can't have is a successful long-term forever monogamous commitment, a commitment to not just this person, but to monogamy with this person for the rest of your life, which is what he's asking of you and what you're balking at. Obviously, you've been able this time to honor the monogamous commitment that you made to this guy while you're in a relationship with him. And yeah, good for you. You did it. But maybe like realizing monogamy wasn't right for you when you made other past open-ended monogamous commitments that you didn't keep, maybe what you need to realize now is that you're capable, actually capable of making a monogamous commitment, just not a long-term one. And so as this relationship moves toward long-term status, you need to renegotiate the terms of the commitment that you've made to this guy. It was monogamous for a while. You did it, but you're done. Done with monogamy and if he can't be done with monogamy too, then you're going to have to be done with him. Hey, Dan, I'm a 20-year-old C-spy man. I'm in a wheelchair with cerebral palsy. I can't jerk off and toys won't work because my dexterity isn't the best. I live in a rural location, so I can't hire a sex worker. What do I do? 
Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Andrew Gerza is a disability awareness consultant and cripple content creator. He's written for Out Magazine, New Now Next, Huffington Post. He's the host of the really terrific Disability After Dark podcast. Hey, Andrew, how are you doing? Good. How are you? Uh, I, I'm really good. I feel like I'm just punting this to you because I have no idea what to say. I'm I'm excited. I can't wait to dive into it. Okay, so cis by guy in a wheelchair, cerebral palsy, can't jerk off, toys don't work, no sex workers nearby, apparently nobody interested in dating him either. He asks, what can I do? I don't know. What can he do? Do you have any advice? Well, when I listen to his question, and I listen to it a number of times to kind of understand where he's coming from, I heard two things. There is a toy that can work, possibly, because I created it. So there, <laughs> there's possibly a toy that could work for him. But also, I heard him say, like, oh, there's no option for me. And I felt bad because I was like, he's obviously going through some internalized ableism that he has to connect with and think about because... If he's saying, oh, nobody wants to date me, he's putting that out in the world. And he's, like, sending that message to everyone else that might want to spend time with him. Okay, so for new listeners, uh, you've been a frequent guest on the podcast. We've talked about ableism before. But for a new listener who may not be familiar with the term ableism, could you define it really quickly for us? Yeah, ableism is the implicit or explicit bias towards able bodies and against disabled bodies. So that can manifest in so many different ways from everyday ableism, like when, when we make fun of someone's body or when we exclude somebody from a place because we didn't put a ramp or more more um, insidious, like asking if my genitals work as a disabled person. And just like homophobia can be internalized, ableism can be internalized. And you think that's might be part of what's going on here is he thinks he assumes he might not be desirable because of his disability and might not be able to find a partner. Yeah. And I, I've, I'll say to him, I've been exactly where he is. I'm a queer disabled person. I haven't really gone on a second date with anybody. I don't really date a lot anymore. I work with sex workers to have my needs met. So I understand the feelings of shame and loneliness and isolation and the urge to not want to try anymore because because of all the ableism he may or may not be experiencing, it's it's exhausting. So I understand that point, but I think that he should keep going. Now, but if he you live in an, an, you live in a big city, so you have access to sex workers. He says he lives in a rural area and there are no sex workers near him. Maybe you have sex worker access privilege that he doesn't. Is there a way for him to control for that or something he could do to work around being in a rural area? I mean, during the pandemic, I still had sex worker privilege, but I didn't see them because of the pandemic. So we had to get creative and we had to look at things like virtual sessions, things like, can I give you some money to make me a video where you jerk off and say my name a bunch? Can can we talk on a Zoom or a Skype and still have that connection. It, it obviously wasn't the same, but it did foster connection and, and allow me to explore intimacy in a different way. So if he's in a wheelchair and is physically disabled to the point where he can't jerk off and he can't manipulate for himself toys, I assume he has caregivers. 
as a disabled person, how do you begin to have a conversation with a caregiver who may see you as not sexual or see your sexual needs as not important? Because if he has caregivers, there's someone in his life who might be able to assist him or find the assistance he might need for the sexual release that he deserves. Yeah, How do you I have mean, that conversation with a caregiver? That's a, It's a tough conversation to start. It's not easy. It doesn't happen overnight. And I think you really have to build a relationship with your caregiver first before you're like, hey, can we talk about jerking off together first? Like, not together, but you know what I mean. Can we talk, can we talk about you assisting me in masturbation? Can we talk about that? I think you have to really build a rapport first before you dive right in. But once you have that, with my workers, because I work as a sex educator and I test a lot of toys and I created a toy, so like I had to do a lot of testing. I had workers with me while I was testing toys, like in the in the other room, waiting while I like tested things out. And it was not comfortable all the time. But I said, this is what I have to do. Will you help me? There's no, there's no sexual relationship between you and I. Can you just help me? And I, I made it part of my care plan for that kind of assistance. And I talked with them quite openly about what my needs were and said, I just need help with this. Can you assist? And many of them said, sure. You know, someone who's a caregiver, that's their job. And we sort of have this idea now, I think appropriately so, I very much think appropriately so, that conversations about sex or intimacy in the workplace are not allowed, that that's can be harassment. But the relationship of a profoundly disabled person with their caregiver, that may be one workplace where you're going to have to have conversations about sexual needs as you meet somebody else, as you help somebody meet their own physical needs, the full spectrum of them, which would include some sort of accommodation for sexual release, would it not? Yeah, I think you're right about that. But I also think, back to your earlier point, the, the, you know, you still have to be very cautious around harassment, around boundaries, around comfort levels. So when I ask my caregivers for help, I'm very clear that I'm saying, can you help me get this toy? Can you help me position this toy? I make it very clinical and I remove any indication that it's you're involved in this. I make, I, I make them put on gloves and make it very clear that this is a care thing you're providing me. And then when I'm set up, I say, get the fuck out. I'm going to do this now. I'll call you in five minutes. Like, thanks. Bye. Like, I set those boundaries up very clearly. Now, how much more difficult would this conversation be with his caregivers if the caregivers are family members? Like, one part of ableism is not seeing disabled people as erotic agents, right? Yeah. Not seeing disabled yeah. people, not just as erotically desirable, but as having any sexual agency or desire at all. And that would be compounded. You know, your parents don't want to see you as a sexual being either, even as an adult. And he's 20. Even if he weren't disabled, his parents probably, other than the like the force field parents construct around your romantic partners where they see the relationship and try not to think about the sex. Like parents don't want to think about their kids' sex lives, but do the parents of someone in this guy's situation have a responsibility to think about and craft accommodations for their kids' sexual needs? I don't think they have a responsibility per se, but they do have an opportunity to have a different relationship with their son if he needs help. My mom and I, for instance, when I was, you know, when I when I was making the toy that I that I the the joystick that I worked on, we talked about masturbation together. We talked about accessibility. We talked about all this stuff together, and like 
I told my mom that I work with sex workers. Like maybe my relationship with my family is different, but we've been always been very open. And I think in part because of my disability, we're able to have those conversations. But I think again, if all he was doing was getting his parents to hand him a sex toy, or you know, let's let's hypothesize, hand him the bump and joystick and say, "Here you go, like enjoy yourself." Maybe that's all they have to do. And I think his parents would be comforted in the knowledge that their son is trying to access sexuality and deserves that as a human right. Tell us about your sex toy. Sure, sure. So my sex toy is called the Bumpin' Joystick. Our company is called Bumpin', and our our goal is to put pleasure within reach for disabled people. And in 2018, my sister and I decided to create the world's first sex toy for and by disabled people because I did a documentary with the National Film Board of Canada where I talked about how I couldn't masturbate and how I lost the ability to self-pleasure probably about six, seven years ago now. Um, and from that documentary, it went to Australia where my sister lives. She saw it and one day we were talking and she went, oh, I didn't realize you couldn't get off. Tell me more about that. So we had a discussion and I was like, well, I can't because of my hands and my CP, it's just too hard. And she was like, well, why don't you just get a sex toy off the shelf? And I kind of rolled my eyes and was like, none of the toys work for me. And she was like, why? And I explained, like, because of my dexterity and my fine motor skill issues, I couldn't access any of the toys. And so we talked some more. And then she was like, well, very naively was like, do you want to make one? (laughs) And so I was like, I don't know if I want to make a sex toy with my sister, but we put a survey out on Reddit and we asked 100 respondents, is this something you struggle with in terms of self-pleasure? And... 63% of people said yes. 92% of people said we want a toy like this. So we realized those percentages actually amounted to like hundreds of millions of people worldwide that couldn't sell pleasure. And we were like, oh, we can do something with this. So what what is different about this toy that makes it possible for someone to to pleasure themselves who couldn't pleasure themselves with an off-the-shelf sex toy? Yeah, so this toy is like if... It's like if a foam roller and a body pillow had a love child that could hold your sex toy. So it's it's designed for somebody with lack of fine motor skills, someone who can't hold tiny little buttons and tiny little toys. It's designed so you can hug into it. So basically there's a pillowy top that you hug into and the bottom is like a peg with a bunch of holes like that you can put your toy into that are the bit that have been designed for all genders and all gender expressions that you can put an off-the-shelf toy into. So if you've bought a bunch of vibrators that you were like, oh, man, these toys don't work for me because I can't use them, you can then put that vibrator or wand or sleeve in the joystick, and then it'll hold it in place for you. That sounds wonderful. Where can people find that online? People can go to our website right now, Get Bumpin'. That's G-E-T-B-U-M-P-N.com. And what we're asking people to do right now is to fund an orgasm so that other people with disabilities can actually access the toy and, and we can make enough to get toys in the bedrooms of disabled folks. So if you want to do something good for the disabled community, buy a joystick, fund an orgasm. Any other thoughts for this caller about his situation? I would say... Try not to be so down on yourself. Try not to be, and I know that's really hard when you're in it, and I've been there too, but 
I just want him to know that he has a sexuality. He deserves the chance to explore that. He deserves the chance to access sex work through the internet, through through like a Zoom or through like a, a, a Skype. And maybe if he did that, he could meet somebody and tell them his reality and be like, look, can I can we find a rate that works where you would come out and where you would help me with this? Um, and I would just tell him that, well, it, it may feel like he can't do anything. There are options and there are other people like me who've been in his position. So I understand what he's struggling with, but I also want him to say, or I want to say to him, keep going. And I, I hope, caller, that you can advocate for yourself. And I hope that the caregivers you have in your life, professionals or family members, are receptive to your advocacy for your own sexual pleasure. That That's really important. And I think it's really going to be the first step are those conversations. Yeah, I agree. Andrew Gerza, check out his podcast, Disability After Dark, available on iTunes and all other podcast platforms. You can and also should be following Andrew like I am on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Andrew Gerza, G-U-R-Z-A-1. Thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast again, Andrew. I really appreciate it. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hey, Dan. This is a uh, gay guy in the uh, Midwest. Basically, in the pandemic, like all of us, I got super horny and lockdown and uh, I found an old message board that I had started years and years ago when I was still straight or you know quote unquote straight you know and it, it was just for chatting and jerking off with other guys and in my profile I said I was straight because I was straight and I got back on it and holy shit the profile was still there and I uh, got on it I started chatting with someone and he and I became really good friends in the pandemic and we really hit it off and for a while we were kind of our each other's only conversation in a lot of ways and we would jerk off a couple times a week and we we're good buddies flash forward to almost a year later we've never met he's across the country and uh he saw something i i had given him my name and he looked me up and he was like holy shit you're gay i you know he, he saw my profile and was like hey it looks like you kind of are with a lot of men are you gay what is this and i, I said yeah i am i'm sorry i did not i really did not mean to like do this i just kind of like we started a relationship in one way and all of a sudden it was that way. Yeah. And it was, he was cool with it. We eventually figured it out. Then yesterday I went online and I saw a picture of someone that looked exactly like him. And then I followed that profile and found he is also gay, also totally out in the city that he's in. And, uh, it's fucking weird. And now I don't know what to do. We're both people who were pretending to be straight, like a bad rom-com. And I want to call him out. And I kind of want to give him shit because he kind of gave me some shit for lying to him. Anyway, I don't know what to do. It's so weird when the guys you meet on the internet to jack off with turn out to be gay. That is so weird. What a plot twist. Look, Go ahead and give this guy shit. What do you have to lose? He gave you shit when he figured out that you were lying about being one of those straight guys who goes on the internet looking for other guys to jack off with during Zoom calls, I guess, on the internet. He gave you shit maybe because he's really that kind of twisted out of the closet case, or maybe he just wanted to sustain your fantasy, your investment in him as a straight guy, that he was engaged as you were engaged, maybe in a kind of 
homoerotic, homosexual <laughs> role-playing where you were getting off on what you were getting away with. You were getting off on being perceived to be straight by this other guy that you were sharing these hot, sexy times with when you were both jacking the fuck off to entertain each other. And so maybe, you know, he was just sustaining the ruse. He was sustaining the, you know, the game. You know, you thought he was straight. That was part of what turned him on about you. He was role-playing straight. And so he continued with the role-play, not to bust you or punish you for being gay and out of the closet, but maybe he wanted to keep jacking off with you or maybe he wanted you to continue to enjoy the memories of jacking off with that hot straight guy during the pandemic on the other side of the country. Who knows? But you have literally nothing to lose here. So say to him, hey, look, I gave you my name. You looked me up. You figured out I was gay. Guess what? I looked you up, figured out you were gay too. This is hilarious. Maybe you can then laugh about it. Maybe he'll then open up to you about why he gave you grief. And I don't think it sounds like he gave you a shitload of grief. Maybe he was just teasing you, playing with you, playing with you in a way that had been established that he had established that you both established that you liked playing with each other, which was that you liked playing with each other under the belief assumption assertion that you were just a couple of straight guys on the internet having a wank with other straight guys on the internet. You can continue with that role play. You can meet up with him still, or Hey, maybe you two can date. Maybe you can get together and, Get your gay on in person without having to put your straight masks on first. And you're right. This does sound like a really great premise for a rom-com. Not a bad rom-com. A good rom-com. We are entering what looks like a golden age of gay rom-coms that are honest about who and what gay men are and how gay men behave. Really enjoyed Joel Kim Booster's Fire Island. Really looking forward to Billy Eichner's bros. There's a film called Spoiler Alert that has rom-com elements that's coming out in the fall that I had something to do with. And yeah, I would watch yours. I watched the shit out of Fire Island. Love it. I loved the trailer for bros. Can't wait to see it. If somebody made your story into a rom-com, ah, I'd watch the shit out of that too. And I don't think it's a bad rom-com. I think it's a great idea for a rom-com. Uh, if you don't write it, maybe I will. Hey Dan, I am a cis female living in the Midwest in my early 30s and I have a question that deals with divorce while grieving. I buried my parents in the last two years, both of them, and I don't have a lot of hope for my marriage working out. I've thrown out the option of divorce. I mean, I, I asked for one. Um, in December and then we've had a lot of talks and fights since then and decided to work on things and things haven't been getting better but I just don't know if I can forget everything that's already happened there was some verbal abuse emotional abuse over the years he said some pretty fucked up things whenever I first broached the subject of wanting to divorce you know made some threats and then later on walked it back of like, well, you know, I'd never really do that. While I do see that he's made a lot of improvements, 
I just don't know that it's ever going to be what I want because I'm not sure that I ever should have gotten married to anybody. I just don't know that it's for me. I just feel kind of confined by the whole premise. We got married when we were in our early 20s. So we've been married about 10 years. And yeah, I just think if I knew what I knew now, I wouldn't have gone along with it. So I just don't know what to do, but I'm still pretty fucked up over losing both my parents so rapidly. And I don't know if I have the strength, the energy to really pull this off because I've brought it up twice now and every time I can't go through with it because I just, I, I end up feeling so bad because I know it hurts him so much when I say I want to leave. And I think for my own health, I have to eventually leave. I just don't know how to do that in a way that doesn't feel like plunging a dagger into both of our hearts. You brought up divorce twice and you didn't get the kind of reaction that you may have hoped to get that a lot of us seem to think we will get from our spouses in some perfect alternate universe. You bring up divorce and your spouse looks at you and goes, oh my God, great idea. Why didn't I think of that? Let's get a divorce. Let's get an amicable divorce. It's what we both want. No, usually how this plays out, even if two people wind up down the road being amicably divorced, usually one person initiates the divorce. One person doesn't ask for a divorce. People use that expression, ask for a divorce. And it suggests that if the answer isn't yes, if the person doesn't agree to give you a divorce, you can't get a divorce. A divorce is something that now, under the laws we live with now, you can demand. It's something that you can impose. And so what I hear you doing is, you know, you've brought up divorce twice and he didn't agree with it. And so you're somehow stuck. I'm also really concerned when you say he made threats and it was the threats that he made that got you to back off the ask that you made. Was he threatening you with physical violence? Was he threatening you financially? If that's the case, if that's why you went to counseling, he made a couple of changes, then you're no longer in a marriage of your own free will. You are blackmailed. You are a hostage if the only reason you're staying is because he's making threats. And if that's the only reason you're staying, you obviously have to go. You spend a lot more time though talking about what so many people talk about when they want an end of relationship is that the, the worry that you're going to plunge a dagger into his heart, that he is going to be hurt and you will be hurt by the end of this marriage, by the end of this relationship. And I don't know when people come to me with that what realistically they want. There is no way to end a relationship. There is no way to end a marriage without the other person noticing, without the other person having feelings about that, strong feelings about that. Sometimes it feels like people want to know how to end marriages or relationships so subtly or so deftly that yeah, no one's going to have a feeling. No one's going to notice. And there's no ending a relationship then. 
if avoiding pain, avoiding hurt, avoiding the burst of pain and hurt when you end something is your mission, is what you most want to do. If, if that burst of hurt and pain, when you call it, when you bring in the lawyers, when you say the relationship, the marriage is over, if you can't face that, you can never get out of the marriage because that is going to come. Even amicably divorced people, there was pain, there was hurt, there were daggers pushed into hearts and it was hard for everyone. But you have to balance, you have to weigh the pain that you fear inflicting in one blazing big bang moment when you say not, may I have a divorce, when you don't ask for a divorce, when you tell the person you are divorcing them against the drip, 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 the accumulation of pain over the decades if you stay with someone that you don't want to be with, if you stay in a marriage that makes you unhappy, or you stay in marriage when what you now know about yourself is that marriage itself, the institution, the being married, isn't the institution where you want to live and isn't the life circumstance that makes you happy and you need out. So what you're looking at is a six-month, three-month, absolute, miserable, painful shit show versus, I don't know, the gradual filling of a manure lagoon over decades. You're going to have a lot more shit that you're having to live with. If you stick around and the manure lagoon rises around you. And so, yeah, you're going to have to over up if you want out and not ask, tell your husband that it's over and then figure it out. And if he's making, if he's made physical threats, if he's made threats to, I don't know, share photos he has of you, if he's made threats to ruin you financially or not support you as he may be legally obligated to, please take steps to protect yourself. You can pack a bag and let someone know that you've left them without having to face them if you feel that facing them is a danger, that you are in physical danger. And call in the cavalry. You know, if you can't afford an apartment right now, if you are getting a divorce, your parents are deceased. Do you have siblings? Do you have cousins? Do you have friends? Do you have aunts? Do you have uncles? Do you have someone you can go to and ask if you can couch surf for a while or... Maybe you have some wealthier people in your life and they have a guest house or an extra bedroom. If you can stay with them for a while, while you get on your feet after you initiate this divorce. Hi, Dan. I've been listening to you for a couple of years now. Really, my friend showed me your podcast in college and helped me through a lot of things. Right now, I'm having a really hard time with transitioning my vocabulary and retraining my brain. My sibling just transitioned to they, them, from she, her. As you can probably tell with my hesitation, I'm having a really hard time with using the correct pronouns and saying sibling rather than sister, especially when I refer to them. I'm just wondering if you have any tips and tricks on how to go about this and retraining your brain to use someone you've known for 23 years. It's just, I have an easier time with going from he, him to she, her, but they, them, 
has been a serious challenge for me. Non-binary and a real struggle in my own head. People use the singular they, them all the time. Usually, though, when we use it, we're referring to a, a class of people, a kind of person, even when we mean just one of them. The go-to example, everyone's go-to example is, you know, someone is complaining to you about their aches and pains and you say, go see your doctor, ask what they think. That was the singular they, them in reference to their doctor, who's just one person. Using they, them, though, to refer to an individual, like your sibling who now uses they, them pronouns, that just takes a little bit of getting used to and a little bit of effort and practice. And from your sibling, a little bit of understanding and grace, transitioning to they, them pronouns if you've never used them before in reference to just one person if your sister, sorry, your sibling, see, I did it, I need to practice too, if your sibling is the first non-binary person who you've had this kind of relationship with, this kind of contact with, the first non-binary person in your life, well, it probably took your sister, ah, your sibling, probably took your sibling a long time to realize that they were non-binary and to start using they, them pronouns themselves. It probably took your sibling a long time to embrace that fact about themselves. Obviously, it will take the people in their life more than five minutes to make the transition that they were making internally for a very long time before they came out. So I hope you have the kind of non-binary person in your life who is demonstrating a little patience, who isn't using your expected, natural, to be expected trip-ups uh, in making the transition to they-them pronouns in reference to your sibling as an excuse to blow up at you. If they're not doing that, well then, you have less reason to be anxious about it, and it's just going to take a little time, a little more practice. You would think I would be pretty well practiced at this by this stage, and yet twice, twice in my response to you, I sistered your sibling. If they hear this, my apologies for stumbling myself, and I would encourage you, please, to have a little bit of patience with your brother who's obviously trying, which is... All we can ask of anybody, sibling or not. Hey, Dan, late 30s woman engaged to early 40s man. He is my person. He is my 0.75 that I round up, but his mom ain't it. His mom is super homophobic, transphobic, everything phobic, uh, operates from a place of fear on all things. We are getting married next year and one of my bridesmaids is gay. She is dating a lovely trans woman. I'm concerned that my future mother-in-law is going to say some dumb shit. I asked my fiance to talk to her. He's going to talk to her because he's good like that. But I'm afraid his mother is going to get drunk and say something offensive and hurt my best friend's feelings. What's the best way to handle this situation besides keeping them separated? So one of your bridesmaids is a lesbian. Their girlfriend is trans. I promise you that if your future mother-in-law gets drunk and says something stupid or ignorant or hateful or malicious, it won't be your bridesmaid or their girlfriend's first trip to that rodeo, that homophobia dodeo, that transphobia do. 
Just warn them. I, I went to a wedding once where the bride's entire family was really homophobic. And it was right before, right as marriage equality was moving through a whole bunch of uh, state Supreme Courts and on its way to the U.S. Supreme Court. So it was a topic at every wedding, every straight wedding. And I didn't expect my friend not to invite their homophobic family members, but I did appreciate my friend like letting us know that uh, some of my family really has a problem with gay people. And my friend had a lot of gay friends. So Terry and I weren't the only gay people at that wedding. And just knowing what we were dealing with, knowing what we might encounter, getting that heads up, a similar heads up had been given to the bride's family, to their parents and, and siblings that, hey, I have a lot of gay friends. They're going to be at the wedding. Don't be a dick to my gay friends. And you know what? There was a little bit of like circling around each other at the start of the wedding. But by the end of the wedding, everyone was getting along fine because no one wanted to be the asshole who ruined the wedding. So none of the gays went after the homophobes and none of the homophobes went after the gays. It was a day when the farmer and the cowman could be friends, which is an Oklahoma reference for the theater fags out there. So let your bridesmaid and their girlfriend know, and her girlfriend know, that your mother-in-law is a monster. Let your mother-in-law know, your future mother-in-law, your soon-to-be mother-in-law, your imminent mother-in-law, know that you have queer friends. They're going to be at the wedding. Your mother-in-law, your future mother-in-law, mom, you should have your fiance do this emotional labor. He should say to his mom, mom, don't be a dick to my wife's friends. If you want to be in our life and included, you can't be a dick. Put her on notice or tell your future husband to put her on notice and then take comfort. In my experience, hateful people often aren't healthy people. So really, how long are you going to have to put up with your husband's mother? All right, before we get to this week's listener response calls, let's read some listener tweets. Starbuck37 tweets, thank you, Fake Dan Savage, for the on-point advice this week and for picking my call. My poly world is stable and continuing to be a blast. Also, you're my inaugural tweet, hashtag Savage Lovecast, hashtag Polly Pride, hashtag Aspiring Accountant. You're welcome, Starbuck37. And I don't think those three hashtags, hashtag Savage Lovecast, hashtag Polly Pride, hashtag Aspiring Accountant, have ever appeared side by side in a single tweet before your inaugural tweet, Starbuck. Thank you for the call. Thank you for the tweet. And I am proud to be your very first follower on Twitter. Lil Ricky tweets at fake Dan Savage going on a rant about a new term describing sexual attraction is so funny to me when he is literally campaigning to get pegging added to the dictionary. I say bring on the specificity hashtag polysexual. The comparison you're trying to make there, Ricky, would only make sense if there were already three or four names for pegging and I was trying to get another one off the ground, like the people out there pushing polysexual, when bisexual, pansexual, omnisexual, and pomosexual already exist, already have their own pride flags, and pretty much all mean the exact same thing. Pegging was a thing, its own thing, it needed a name, now it has a name, just one name that belongs in the dictionary and not any dictionary, I'm not out here campaigning to get pegging added to 
Miriam Webster, Miriam Webster can go fuck herself. I want pegging in the Oxford English Dictionary. Nothing less than the OED will do. And finally, Jamie Barton herself tweets, I already knew I'd be a magnum sub for Dan Savage's Savage Lovecast for Life, but I love the idea of getting to be a guest sexpert every once in a while. And Dan, call me anytime. Jamie, we will definitely have you back on the Lovecast. Everybody loved you. Come try your hand sometime and non-vocal cord throat fucking related sex advice. All right. If you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And thank you to everyone who posted about the show this week to your social media accounts. Helps get the word out about the show. We really appreciate it. And now listener response calls. This is for the caller from episode 819, who has the boyfriend who's a bad kisser. Maybe it's not that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things, but as someone married to a bad kisser for over 20 years now, I urge you to think it over. Imagine not having a proper makeout in decades. It's too late for me now, caller. Save yourself. This call is in response to episode 819 about the gay guy who feels like he needs to just overcome this hurdle of not sleeping with guys or meeting up with them on Grindr. And while I think Dan's advice was good, I just want to also say... Like, what's pushing you to have sex with guys? Like, if you're not feeling it with someone, don't have sex with them. That's the way I've always operated. And granted, I am really picky, but I've still managed some really great relationships and some great sex because I just didn't do things that my gut said no to. I just waited, you know, sometimes impatiently, but I just waited until eventually my gut did feel good about somebody. And then it ended up being great. Dan, thank you so much for talking on last week's opener about all the different ways to say that you're attracted to multiple genders. You definitely saved me having to call you with a very anxious question. I'm a 30-year-old cis bi gal, and I selected the label bi for myself a while ago uh, when we had fewer options. And still feel like it fits well, but I do occasionally get some pushback or criticism from folks saying I shouldn't use bi because some people use bi in a trans-exclusionary way. I've never felt that bisexual is trans-exclusionary. My partner's trans and also bi, and neither of our sexual orientations have ever stopped me from loving her. So thank you so much for the reassurance. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's Lovecast or something to say about something I said on this week's Lovecast? Use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us at 206-302-2064. Submissions for the new 2023 edition of Hump, my dirty little porn film festival, are now live. If you're curious about submitting to Hump but worried you don't have the filmmaking chops, please don't worry about that. We love the do-it-yourself filmed-on-a-phone movies. I prefer them to glossy, pro-looking films. And don't forget that movies that make it into the festival compete for awards and receive a cut of the ticket sales. Go to humpfilmfest.com slash submit for all the info you need about making and submitting a film for Hump. Once again, humpfilmfest.com slash submit. And while you're on the internet, be sure to stop by savage.love and read my weekly sex advice column, Savage Love. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Andrew Gerza on Twitter at AndrewGerza1. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian. And me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy will all be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.